Mission One World on Bristol's BCFM 93.2. Inclusive radio for Bristol. So, as the vaccine rollout sweeps the country, could the growing anti-vaccine movement threaten our best shot at ending the pandemic? Is the £5 million extra for the Bristol Beacon, formerly the Colston Hall, really money well spent? And as thousands of school children across the country are sent back into schools, we ask, is it safe? You're listening to the Bristol Agenda, the local, the local news and current affairs show on BCFM 93.2, with your presenters me, Priyanka Raval, and my esteemed colleague, Tin Hinson. But first, in honour of International Women's Day, and you can hear the uh, the song that went viral last year, The Rapist Is You, in the back here, our lead story will be Kieran Catra with a special edition of The New Normal. And we're joined by members of the Bristol Women's Strike Assembly. We have Susie, Ollie, Jen and Sasha. Welcome everyone. Hi. Hello. So we're here to talk about the uh, International Women's Strike. The strap line for the strike is, when we stop, the world stops with us. Susie, do you want to elaborate on this? Basically, uh, the Women's Strike not to be confused with the International Women's Day. So Women's Strike happens on the 8th of March. It is not uh, your normal celebration of the Women's Day. Oh, I'm women, wonderful. Let's, let's have a good day. Let's have a break. It's a lot more radical than that. Okay. So, uh, and it's in that same way, it's neither about that nor about a middle class, more kind of liberal feminism fight for gender equality in the workplace or for political power. Okay. The thing about it that I think is the most amazing thing about it, to me, it's a new wave of feminism. Uh, it Because it joins up the struggles of the most marginalised, most exploited uh, women across the world. It's not just women, but migrants, sex workers, uh, trans women, Mm-hmm. Poor single mothers, uh, queer people, indigenous people, traffic women, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so we're saying that it's it's different from the Women's Day um, movement because it manages to reach parts of parts of society that perhaps that movement doesn't manage to quite reach. If I tell you a bit about the history, we can see. Yeah, of course. We can say we can see how it is the most marginalised women. That mm-hmm. have created this movement. So, for example, so the movement uh, started in Argentina uh, was in 2015. Young women started to kind of spontaneously going on digital platform and denouncing the, the killing of young women. What they call what what is called femicide. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, the LGBT community joined in. Mm-hmm. And they focused a lot on the fight to get abortion rights. And in 2017, they had their biggest global mobilization, which involved 55 countries all over the world. Amazing. The reason why I'm saying it's a different movement is because it is not about, oh, we want better rights in the workplace. We want the state to give us this. What, what this movement has done is connected 
the notion of violence from from sexual violence, rape, domestic violence, into the violence that women suffer every day at the hand of capitalism in the workplace, mm-hmm. in the home, because the work we do is taken for granted and makes us poor. And what that means is that this system relies on women's work to be unpaid, unvalued, exploited. That's where it comes when we stop, the world stops with us. The recognition that what we do in our reproductive work is not only essential in terms of keeping society going, but without us, capitalism would fall apart. So, Which takes us tidily onto the next question of what exactly are we striking from? So the movement is striking from every, anything that mm-hmm. keeps the system standing up. You, whether you strike from your paid job, whether you mm-hmm. strike from your unpaid work, childcare, housework, looking after your relatives in the community, whether you do a consumer strike, the whole reproductive system and productive system falls, falls apart if all of us strike. It almost sounds like we're striking from our lives. How, how, how would the country actually function that day? It would collapse. Exactly. Susie, you pointed out that um, the, the movement welcomes people of all minorities. Jen, I believe you identify as queer. Can you can you tell me what the strike means to you? Yeah, totally. So, I guess kind of um, feeding on from what Susie was saying about the the history of the women's strike and the LGBTQ community being a big part of that. Um, queer people experience a huge amount of discrimination mm-hmm. in, across the world. Um, <laughs> so, with the government did a survey in 2019. Um, which kind of looked at the experiences of um, people within the LGBTQ community. And, you know, they found that compared to the um, the rest of the UK population, there was a much, much lower life satisfaction. Um, Mm. About, yeah, two thirds of people reported that they, you know, avoid holding hands in public because of fear of negative reprisal. Um, Two-fifths had experienced verbal harassment or physical violence in the last 12 months. Shockingly, 2% of the people surveyed had experienced conversion therapy. So that's um, a therapy which aims to try and um, stop, prevent or undo their sexuality, essentially. I didn't even realise that was still legal in this country. I think actually it's also happening on the 8th of March is that in Parliament they're going to be debating um, banning conversion therapy, sexuality and for gender. Um, Mm -hmm. In that same survey, so 24% of people had accessed mental health services um, in relation to um, issues around their their sexuality um, in the last 12 months as well. So, yeah, I mean, essentially, so as as somebody who identifies as as queer, but who also, you know, recognise have um, in terms of other kind of intersections of, of my um, myself, like have a lot of privilege. It's mm. really important to me to be able to use use that to kind of raise awareness to um, represent <laughs> as best as possible in the day, and um, you know just demand a new normal. Claps are not enough. <laughs> They certainly aren't, are they? And um, and like you like you said, it's um, it's those communities, those 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 marginalised communities that are suffering the most. With that, Sasha, I'd like to sort of ask you about your work with uh, One Twenty Five. Sure. Um, 
So 125 is an incredible Bristol organization um, that works specifically with street sex workers. Anything that happens, as you said, anything that happens that affects society society negatively affects them the hardest. So 125 basically fight for the system to change. Mm -hmm. They do that on many levels. So 125 has reported since the beginning of the first lockdown a 25% increase in violence against street sex workers in Bristol, which is really a really frightening number considering the drastically increased exposure to violence and sexual violence that street sex workers experience already. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm beginning to see how this is quite different from Women's Day in terms of <laughs> we really are reaching the minorities and those most most affected. Thank you, Sasha. Ollie, in your opinion, why is it important for men to understand and respond positively to the concept of the women's strike? Thank you, Kieran. I, I love that question. Well, okay, first, um, men can be feminists, of course, and I think we should be. I, I, I believe that patriarchy, sexism and gender equality have been and are pretty much continue to be constructed by men, uh, usually powerful men. So to those men who believe and or act in ways that suggest that they think that patriarchy, sexism, gender inequality, etc., are okay, I'd kind of come up with a, a a brilliant argument it's one that that Malcolm, Malcolm X used when he was talking with uh, black people who who were kind of buying into um the the American white um social contract mm. and kind of and, and kind of accepting racism as as some kind of that well that just kind of happens and he said to them you've been hoodwinked you've been bamboozled and I'd say to them look have a look around you look at the utter shit that women are expected to tolerate and somehow be somehow be grateful for. And then and then think about the millions of things that women do, often unpaid, to keep our world turning. And that's why that 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 quote you mentioned earlier, Kieran, yeah. when we stop, the world stops with us, is I think so so important. It's so telling. And you know, I I think that patriarchy, sexism are pretty much the biggest divide and rule tactic uh, that the powers that be yeah. have on the whole planet. Mm-hmm. And they go hand in hand with racism. They go hand in hand with classism. So why women's strike? Why would I encourage men all over the planet to join women's strike? Well, because it's about showing our feminism. So it's about educating, agitating and organising. It's in distinct contrast with what I think are often anodyne and extremely unchallenging celebrations of International Women's Day. And you've got systems and and structures that oppress women, degrade women, marginalise them 365 days a year is a nonsense. Because that, that I think, is another another really important part of women's strike. It isn't saying, okay, on this one day, sisters, Mm -hmm. on this one on this one day, we're going to withdraw our labour. It's it's a focus to do it far more frequently, far more militantly, all the time. It's a way of life rather than a choice for a day, right? Absolutely, I do believe that the women's right becomes more powerful with the support of men. I mean, I think it'd be very difficult to do it without men because we need men to, that day, if we're going to strike, to to help look after the children um, and do the stuff that we're striking from. I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, how you assisted last year on the women's strike. Oh, last year? Hmm. Um, Sure. Um, uh, to cut a long story short, in in Bristol, uh, 
I was involved in a group of, I think, seven or eight men mm. who, who, who prepared, I, I mean, apart from a little bit of other assistance, our, our main event to support the strike was cooking for about 300 people, three, 400 people. And, and, I, th- and I think that, that one of the important things there is it's kind of putting your money where your mouth is to an extent. Yeah. We can do that. Mm-hmm. Women have got other important things to be doing today. So we're providing that as a form of care yep. because it's usually what women do. And we don't think it is always what women should be doing at all. Yeah. Can I just add to that, that when they had the general strike mm-hmm. in Spain, one of the ways they did it is that, for example, in critical care services like the NHS, the women went on strike and the men went to work. So they swapped their shifts. So there was no danger to, to patients there was no, no loss of life and that's just what women do isn't it we don't leave our responsibilities we make sure that somebody covers our shift um i want to finish by um a couple of questions if that's okay and those questions are the questions that we always ask on the demanding new normal series what are your current demands what do you want to happen right now to make our situation less precarious for the women in our community? Basic income for all, which means every citizen would get a basic income, no matter whether they're working or not, and mm-hmm. what jobs they're doing. It will provide an independent income to all those mothers that have had to give up their jobs because they've been doing a triple shift of uh, caring, um, uh, homeschooling their children and their paid jobs so they and their housework, so they've had to give up their jobs and they have to rely totally on yeah. their partner's income. And also it will increase the income of all the single parents that have had to give up their jobs. They're, they're a real group uh, that have really suffered through this because they lost their support from informal networks as well, from their families, from their friends. And so they, a lot of them have, have had to leave their jobs and they have to rely on universal credit. Rent, rent capping and much tighter controls in the private yeah. rented sector so that, so that women and people of all genders can actually afford... Uh, to rent privately rather than waiting desperately for the social housing that they're unlikely to get because there's such a science. Especially in Bristol. Um, Mm -hmm. Especially in Bristol. Hand in hand with that, a massive council house building campaign. Yeah. Something like like what happened after the First World War and happened after the Second World War, so that there's decent quality, affordable housing for everybody. Um, I'd, I'd also add to that a complete overhaul of the welfare benefit system to mirror the living wage, not mm-hmm. the minimum wage, um, so, so that the social reproduction that we talked about earlier, the care and nurturing uh, that women do is actually yeah. properly recognised. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ollie. It makes me kind of think about the um, the mayor that we have in Bristol who has a massive um, campaign for social housing but is equally talking about closing strip joints that we have in Bristol. So it's, I mean, which way do we go? Which way do we go? We've got to keep campaigning for the bits that we need. What would the new normal post-pandemic, post-2021 look like to you in the context of the women's strike? Um, The end of domestic abuse and violence. Um, Men properly and fully sharing caring responsibilities for their kids, their partners, their elders Mm -hmm. and their neighbours. No one left hungry, no one left homeless, no one left unvalued, no one exploited. Mm -hmm. Uh, The end of our our climate crisis driven from a feminist perspective. Um, And the last one on my my brief shopping list is um, the... the, uh, 
a movement towards men, women, people of all genders, sharing their knowledge, skills and power to create counterpower institutions that, that challenge and do far better than the existing institutions that we have. Yeah, uh, the mm. women's strike, this new mm-hmm. wave of feminism, can help us to think about a world, a, a world where we live mm-hmm. to care for each other, not to compete with each other, and a world where we see, or we see ourselves as interdependent mm-hmm. on each other and on nature for our survival. Our freedom to be what we want to be, to identify ourselves as mm-hmm. we want to identify ourselves and, and live happily where we can engage in our passions and creative needs uh, is there and is enabled by actually us looking after each other. I was just thinking about the um, Federici quote says, you know, how would the future look different if we refuse to base our life and our reproduction on the suffering of others, if we refuse to see ourselves as separate from them? That's a beautiful quote, isn't it? I just want to say thank you. Um, I, I think you've conveyed so well and so clearly just how important strikes like this are. And sure, the strike is one day, but there is a movement that is... 365 days of the year. And um, Susie, do you want to do a shout out on the link? Womenstrike.org.uk. We uh, run all at the moment every Monday. Uh, we run one Monday a book club where we read feminist literature and okay. discuss it online. And uh, on Alternative Monday, we run uh, consciousness raising groups, which is basically people getting together of all genders and discussing issues around their everyday lives their experiences something to do with what, what is work like what you know things about the body mm-hmm. things about care about sex and what does it mean and what's your experience and so everybody again is very welcome to join us um i wish you all the best of luck and i look forward to hearing um the responses that you receive i look forward to seeing how the the movement expands over time to come thank you to kieran catra for putting another superb edition of demand a new normal together for us there franca i don't think i've uh, said to you yet but happy international women's day oh thank you very much tin it's all right <laughs> uh, so a few things stood out for me there uh, a lot of the time on the news and some of the topics that we cover on this show we're talking about I suppose you could call them like big glamorous things, things with like multi-million pound budgets. But a lot of the topics that are relevant here are much closer to home. And it's like the questions of who cooks, who cleans, who raises the kids. You know, to what extent does women's work still make the world go round? I feel like we should cut to that Beyonce song of who runs the world, girls. Um, But no, I think you're right. And it's a really good analogy to make, actually, that we talk about real work and we associate with things of what's traditionally thought of as labor, just in the same way as we think of real news, which is stuff to do with, as you said, big budgets, political decisions and and all these things. But it was really great to hear from Susie Giuliari there from the Women's Strike Assembly, who I had the pleasure of interviewing last year for Women's Day as well. And she was telling me exactly this. and, And I have to say, it was quite a, um, a revolutionary idea for me as I'm sure it must be for, for other people too but that work that was traditionally ascribed to women like cooking, cleaning, raising children, reproduction is not considered as work even though it is absolutely essential for society I remember her mm. telling me 
And she was gro- growing up in Bologna in the 70s in this real radical wave of activism. And uh, she told me that it was Leopoldina Fortunati, who was one of the first feminist Italians to come up with the idea that women's work should be waged. So obviously this strike is a symbolic one. Mm. Uh, it, it's it's an impossible ask, really, in a catalyst society. But it's... Um, you know, in the strike, they ask men to take on these tasks and it's more about recognizing other types of work, making sure that it is really valued and collectively provided across uh, genders. And I also think that's that's interesting that in talking about women's liberation, they're talking about the the freedom from all forms of exploitation and oppression, mm-hmm. you know, patriarchy, sexual violence, um, uh, trans rights, gay rights, all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, uh, happy Women's Day to to everybody Mm. listening today. So, on to the next big news of the day, that is children going back to school. (laughs) And a gimmicky track to intro the story. Tin, you've been following this. Yeah, so today thousands of school children went back to school after months of being at home. Uh, So I'm sure it's prompted a few sighs of relief from parents now alleviated of the burden of school children. But it obviously raises the question, is it safe to do so? So I spoke to uh, Lana Crosby, who is a teacher and social activist, just before we went on air. uh, And I have to say, after she put in a, a shift at work to do as well. So appreciate her taking time out to speak to us. Back uh, after the extended spring break, what was it like today in school? Um, it's emotional. We've got some young people who are very happy to be back, but also some young people who are very anxious about being back. Hmm. Um, I would say that's the same for the staff as well. Um, very busy, you know, trying to get all the tests done and making sure that everyone's keeping the two-metre distance and everyone's as supported as possible. Mm. It was logistically a very busy day. What is it that, that people are nervous about? Are they nervous about COVID directly? or um, yeah, um, what, what was the yeah, sense you were getting? From the point of view of the students, mm. they are nervous about whether it's safe. You know, they've spent the better part of... Uh, when did we break up for Christmas? Oh, just before Christmas. Mm. And there was talk of a lockdown then. Mm. And obviously that then occurred. So yeah. from our perspective, you know, there are questions such as, why is the eighth safe, but the seventh wasn't? You right. know, um, where's this date coming from? How do we know that it's definitely safe? Um, mm. How do we know if the environment's safe? And then they have other questions which are probably a bit more pressing in relation to their exam results, what does that mean for them? Mm. What work have they got to do? You know, will I get my result? Am I going to get my place at uni? I mean, you know, I'm very much like some of the other teachers and and educators across Britain today, particularly in secondary and post-16 colleges, you're going to be asking, answering a lot of these questions of every time some students. So I think everyone... Except, I think even the government have admitted that this return is going to increase the spread of COVID, but they sort of say that it's necessary. Um, But I wonder what measures you think the government could have been putting in to make this return somewhat safer? Um, 
from a personal perspective, I think that this should absolutely have been a phased return. Um, this idea that everyone can be or needs to be separated. I mean, we're not allowed to see our friends and family, but we can just go back to a school where there's like a thousand kids running around and there's teachers mm-hmm. and other staff members. It's just ludicrous that that's not going to have an impact. It's not going to increase um, potential cases. So I think what they could have been doing is doing a more phased return, like a more delayed start, you know, maybe getting groups in at mm. a certain amount of time. They could have also uh, put teachers and educators into priority groups for vaccinations. You know, we are facing lots of young people who they themselves may get COVID and not necessarily be as ill as older members of society or more vulnerable members of society. But that doesn't mean that they can't transmit their symptom, um, those illnesses to us who could potentially be quite unwell. Sure. And we have less protection than you would get, I don't know, in a supermarket. You mm. know, you have to wear a mask in the supermarket. You've got to shop on your own um, where possible. You have, to, you know, they have these sort of perfect sort of um, dividers up so that the cashiers are safe and quite rightly so. When you come into a school, by and large... There is nothing there other than the mask and the goodwills of the staff and the students to remain distance, and that's it. That's our mm. protection. I, mean, I suppose. I suppose what the government would say is that you know, okay, um, you're still not allowed to sort of socialise with your friends, um, but they'd say that it's, it's more important that kids go back to school. So, I mean, do you? What do you think about that? Do you think that the kids have suffered from? having all that time away from school? Have you noticed any effects of that? Um, I think it's variable. Uh, there are some children who have actually thrived by online learning because all those anxieties they have about being in the classroom, the lack of attention from a teacher or an educator because you know they're trying to divide their attention amongst lots of people at once, they're actually finding it really useful to have these kind of sessions online where they feel that they're getting more attention and they don't have to have their cameras on at times so that they don't worry about what everyone's looking at them or what they might be saying so they really focus and they've actually i have had students who when i look at their progress they've really shot up online Mm. likewise there are students who have really struggled online and the effects of being more socially isolated and not necessarily getting off getting on very well with online learning, you know, finding the pace of it difficult and connectivity mm. issues, the digital divide is a real thing. And if you're from a disadvantaged background or a background where maybe um, money is an issue and opportunities are an issue mm. and having access to services are an issue, then this pandemic and this third lockdown in particular has been really hard for them. So it's definitely been variable. But I think the message that kids need to be back in school because of all the learning they've lost. Listen, I don't know about anybody else, but I think I speak for a lot of educators when I tell you I have worked tirelessly from Christmas up to today um, doing online learning and making sure that students are not missing out on learning. So they are missing out on potentially some of the more social elements, but they're learning. They have had access to everything. It hasn't been the case that they've been at home and they've stopped learning. They're still Mm. learning. It's different. But they are still learning. So this idea of missed education, I find it quite misleading because that's not the case. Thank you so much to Lana Crosby there for coming on to speak to us after a long shift at school.
So, yeah, nine unions representing school leaders have called for schools to be given flexibility to take local measures to strengthen the safety of students and staff. Concerns been raised about the effect on COVID-19 elections and unison, to, sorry, COVID-19 infections of bringing all pupils back on the same day. And unison has called the Big Bang approach reckless. So, Tin, I know your son Eli went back to school today. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, I mean, I've I got sort of mixed feelings. I think, um, you know, as policy for the whole country, I think there's, you know, that that's a sort of question in itself and the effects on COVID and all that sort of thing. For me, I think Lana hit the nail on the head, really, with the interview. It's, you know, in terms of him being off school for a, a, a couple of months, I'm not too worried about the sort of education effect of that. Uh, but in terms of the social aspects, I think actually I think it's quite important for him to be back at school. Um, so yeah, I guess it's education's not all about the content of the national curriculum, mm. and some of the effects of that are a little bit sort of counterintuitive as well. And um, so you know, Lana was saying that actually some students will have excelled in this environment because maybe they didn't feel like they could speak up in the classroom. Um, and I suppose, you know, I listened to that with a little bit of a feeling of like, well, at some point in the real world, you are going to have to um, sort of learn to cope with those sort of social situations and that sort of thing. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it's not necessarily something that's good to allow people to sort of hide away, hide away, hide away forever. Yeah, but, absolutely. I think I think you're very right to say that... Um the education is so much more than just the what, what you learn in the classroom and the kind of um, the practicalities of it. It's the, it's the whole holistic experience. And I mean, even now today, looking at pictures of students waiting for COVID tests and wearing face masks and queuing around the playground, standing two meters apart. Anyway, it's going to be a very strange uh, kind of. So it, it, even though they are going back to school and able to have that social con. Uh, contact again it's still happening in quite a bizarre way yeah i I think it it will be bizarre and i think it's you know there's some things that are going to have a real long tail to it i think um you know at the same time kids will be kids and it Mm. is like really heartening to see eli playing back with his mates and that sort of thing and it's you know that they are sort of straight back into it i've actually got a little clip uh kids playing school get a load of that they're having fun <laughs> I think you know that they seem pleased they seem pleased to be back <laughs> exactly that's our sort of scientific uh, basis for it <laughs> on on the ground reporting there mm. so let's go to our next story um, which is about the Bristol Beacon so the Bristol Beacon formerly known as the Colston Hall uh, the, amp- the anticipated cost of the major council project to refurbish the Bristol Beacon has more than doubled now to an eye-watering £107 million. It was originally set at £48.8 million in 2008, then revised a year later to £52.2 million, And now the expected cost of the project has ballooned to £106.9 million, according to a new report. Uh, the report, which is due before the council, Bristol City's, uh, which is, sorry, will be given to Bristol City Council next week, um, is now 
is now is not expected to be ready to hold its first show until the end of 2023, which is three years later than originally planned. Grand. So we've got uh, a clip from the One Love Breakfast show from last week, where uh, Pat started off by asking um, Marvin why these why these extra costs weren't picked up at the time. So here's his answer. Um, there were limitations on the, the how invasive those studies could be because the, the venue was still being operated and needed to operate because uh, Bristol Music Trust was in there. So it wasn't until it was actually fully closed and things could start to be pulled apart that, that, that the full extent of those um, discoverables um, was available um, to us. Both the Elizabethan Wells, the Victorian fireplaces, the Keating system. So, it's, the, the complexity is the complexity is uh, the impact of COVID and Brexit on on the construction industry in general. But it's also the that this is a heritage building. I would also say, Pat, one of the the, the challenges um, that we faced here is that um, the image used this morning, quite quite accurately, actually, was like this is like an MOT when someone pulls up the bonnet and discovers. You know, you've got an issue with your car. The complexity for here is that no one's actually serviced this car for 60 years. Right. The last major renovation on Colston Hall was uh, was 60 years ago. So this, the building's just been left for 60 years. And we've come in and picked up the consequences of that. Right. I mean, some years back, I mean, it's not that long ago, myself, Paul Burnett, uh, and, and, and many others were part of a group that brokered this um this this transition from bristol city council to the bristol music trust we helped to write the vision and i don't think anyone's in any doubt of the amazing work that the bristol music trust has done over the years including uh, ultimately changing the name so the trust is important the building is equally uh, as important because it is the, the the center point um for so much in music across the city and it's not just anymore uh, some kind of fancy venue that only um, the privilege can go to. It's something that, that involves the entire uh, wider Bristol community. However, um, shouldn't this, the financial burden of this, uh, push completely to the Bristol Music Trust with some input from the council? Or is that still the case? How liable are we as, as, as ta- taxpayers in Bristol? Well, because the work has been done now and, and the building has been properly investigated, pulled apart, we have a very high degree of confidence on what the actual cost is of this. And and, and what I'd say, Pat, is, I mean, it's, it, they are a lot of sums, but this is about discovering the cost of this project. It, it, you know, it, it's a heritage building. Yeah. The, the choice is do it or don't do it. Yeah. Uh, if you don't do it, and I, I actually, if I went on radio and said that a couple of years ago, actually we're selling Paul's and Hall for flats, you know, we, we wouldn't be allowed to do it anyway because it's, it's a building. Right. But, you know, we we have a high degree of confidence on on the, on the costs, and that's been at the that's been at the heart of our negotiations with Walmart Dixon um, over the last uh, couple of weeks now. Why? Um, but, but it's been reported that the council scrutineers have uh, 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 has been delayed. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, because of the because of the um, well, we gave a briefing to councillors before the paper was made public. Right. But the negotiations with the company, um, we we had to pull the paper from last cabinet meeting because we had to be clear we're not going into it with a with a with a cost bracket with no top end to it. Okay. And um, so we were making negotiations with the company. So. Cabinet members are expected to approve the spending of the extra 
58.1 million to complete the project when they meet tomorrow uh, on Tuesday. Bristol taxpayers are going to be the ones who will foot the majority of the additional cost with 44.5 coming from the council's capital budget and the remaining extra 13.6 million to be covered uh, from the Arts Council Wecker uh, uh, and Wecker. So I think it was interesting just to touch on what, what mm. Marvin Rees, um, what Pat asked Marvin about, uh, about her, you know, what it seemed like hiding the information. So the scrutiny councillors who were, uh, you know, privy to this com- confidential information about the project were really shocked when the report was pulled from the cabinet meeting at the last minute. And they kind of accused the administration of botching the tendering process and trying to hide the costs um, until after May's local election. So it's interesting to hear Marvin's response there. But I mean, Tin, I wanted to ask, is this as sinister as it seems? I mean, what, what, um, or not sinister, or maybe a, mm. an unjustified expense, because you know when the when the builders started gutting the building, there were these huge uh, unforeseen structural problems. You know, well shafts, mm. stoves, hollow pillars propping up the roofs, um, and and they just it was just worse than they expected. Is there anything? Um, is that justified? Yeah, I think it's one of those where if you look at the sort of into you know you sort of go through it the play-by-play so that the council had this big structure that hasn't been renovated since the 50s it's a heritage building so they you know they wouldn't be allowed to just close it and turn it into flats even if they wanted to Mm. um but on the other hand they originally quoted uh, about 50 million and it's basically doubled it's another 50 million on top of that and the defence of it that people say is, well, this always happens with mm. you know big construction projects. But then it's like, actually, if that's your defence, that's a really bad defence because the uh, council has about £900 million pounds, um, of capital spending allocated at the moment. Mm. And, you know, I, I suppose one can be sympathetic to the individual reasons why this happened, sympathetic to the need for the renovation in the first place, but also be sort of concerned about what this says about the council's ability to sort of manage these, um, these big projects. And, you know, some people have said that's a sort of unfair criticism Mm. and it's, you know, it's just in the nature of the building, but you know, it's fifty million pounds. I think these questions do need to be sort of asked. <laughs> it's not a small sum of money, is it? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I think what's also interesting is that you know, last last week a reparations motion was passed in Bristol City Council. Um, reparations meaning kind of addressing the harm uh, done by slavery and the legacy mm. of that, um, and that's not just financial. That can be in in lots of different restorative justice ways. But when I was speaking to uh, Cleo Lake, um, Deputy Mayor Cleo Lake, Lake, who's also a councillor for the Green Party last year, um, she was talking about how a way that reparations could happen on a local level is to properly fund some of the local uh, black-led spaces in Mm. the city and that that was um, a means by which financial justice could create and help to create a greater racial equity and you know we've mm. covered on this show before the the lack of fun you know the rastafari community center and does it seem a bit contradictory then when small then you know grassroots venues are being shut down mm. and here the colson hall former colson hall sorry the bristol beacon is being given a blank check 
Yeah, it, it seems. Uh, I mean, again, like, you know, in the interview with Pat, there was sort of reference to the fact that the sort of Bristol Music Trust also does lots of work in schools. I think I spoke to somebody from the organisation earlier today and she told me that they were in 95% of schools mm. in Bristol now. Um, so to some extent, it, you know, you can make the argument, oh, they're, they're trying to reach out. But on the other hand, it, it again, it does sort of sit a, a bit uncomfortably when you see the sort of eye-watering sums of money here and the sort of reasoning that, like, you know, we have to protect this centre, this is a really important nationally recognised heritage space. Mm. And, again, you can accept that reasoning, but you can also push it back and say, well, you know, why is it that this is a nationally recognised heritage space (laughs) and therefore, of course, we have to do something with it? And the same is not true of, you know, the Malcolm X Centre, the Cumber Centre, um and you know all, all these other many many other places that you could mention that are struggling for the want of much smaller amounts of money yeah i think more more questions to be asked there right you are listening to the bristol agenda on bcfm do get in touch if you've got any contributions to make um if you want to know your thoughts on all of these subjects uh, for now we're going to have a little break for some music we got love, love, love. You better believe it. Say love. We got love, love, love. You better believe it. That was Tayana Taylor featuring the immortal wisdom of Ms. Lauren Hill. Uh, the track's called We Got Love. Now, you may have seen the Bristol Cable's new viral video, What's Causing the Mistrust in Vaccine. It's presented by BCFM's Marcus Smith. It's produced by uh, Adam Cantwell-Corn. An assistant producer is somebody called Priyanka Ravel. Uh, so before we talk about that, here's a trailer and then straight into that interview with Marcus. If you feel you have been betrayed and lied to, then you are more likely to be suspicious. Oh, I'm not going to the doctors because they're killing me. If you want to protect old people, take your mask off. Let's do it. (laughs) Um, So before you started making this film, did you think... Uh, vaccine hesitancy is that something you'd come across did you did you see that as a as a threat to the vaccine rollout yeah I've got a lot of family members and friends who are hesitant about taking the vaccine and for a number of reasons you know a number of good reasons um, which are probably exaggerated but um, yeah I just really wasn't aware of the scale of the anti-vaxxer movement who are like really like strongly opposed to taking it and uh, yeah, it seems to be for like a number of reasons, like DNA and Bill Gates and the government's plan, this whole pandemic uh, for its own plan moving forward. What that plan is, I don't know. And to be <laughs> honest, sort of the competency of the government to have done something this well and on this scale, I highly doubt it, to be honest. Um, but, you know, anti-vaxxers do have valid points. They say the government's handling of the pandemic has made mistakes with vaccines in the past and the media is full of bias information as we know so 
yeah, I think what it came down to was just a mistrust, a mistrust in the powers that be. And that's translated into an anti-vaxxer sentiment and, and movement. Are you, are you simply- right, there we go. So uh, uh, that was Priyanka, obviously, talking to Marcus earlier today. Uh, apologies, Priyanka. I, I, I left that little intro in from you because I, I thought it'd just give a bit of energy to the piece. <laughs> Here we go. So, um, so you were involved in putting this documentary together. And, well, I know you. I know you as a journalist as well. You're very empathetic to people. How much sympathy did you have for... Uh, you know, the anti-vaxxers who are being covered here? I have to say it really changed over the course of um, making this documentary. And, you know, I think that was true of other people in the team as well. But initially, I think there was a tendency to dismiss everyone who... Uh, might have concerns about the vaccine as an anti-vaxxer and probably they are tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorists who believe in crazy things but and and you know that is a section that is a section of the people but there are also I think a much greater um, kind of sway the people who are just vaccine hesitant which is, and that that it's a spectrum and I think it it varies between people who think uh, oh, I don't know. It's all gone through a bit quickly. Um, that it hasn't hasn't been tried and tested, and some like legitimate um, concerns. Maybe some people who are saying I'd rather wait and see. Some people who are just a bit generally skeptical of the government or skeptical of big pharma. And, and as Marcus said, those are all kind of legitimate reasons. Well, I mean, how big a thing is it? Like, you know, people talk a lot about vaccine hesitancy and people worry a lot about conspiracy theories. But I think last time I checked, about was it about 17 million people have had their vaccines in the UK so far. And, mm. you know, of the groups that have been offered it, people seem to be taking it up. Like, Yeah, so... Well, it's interesting. I think the UK is one of the better uh, countries in Europe in terms of vaccine uptake. Um, but at the same time, WHO came out and said that vaccine, you know, the anti-vax conspiracy movement was a threat to global health. So it was something that you take really seriously. And one of the people who were interviewed in the documentary is uh, Stefan Ledonowski, who is a professor um, at Bristol University. And he says, you know, Spreading, sh- sharing some posts on uh, social media is one thing, but then actively sharing misinformation, which might be detrimental to people's health, is another. And I suppose going back to your question of sympathy, I was sympathetic to some of the reasons why people uh, had vaccine hesitancy. But the more towards the extreme end it got, the more I think there is uh, a case for saying, you know, that is actually quite irresponsible, mm. maybe. Well, yeah, so just to, uh, I checked on it, it's actually 21 million people who've had the vaccine Mm. uh, so far. But yeah, so on that point, at the more extreme end of things, did you get a sense of like, what's the motivation of people who are sort of spreading things that aren't true? Do you you think they know that it's not true? What's... Well, I don't know. I think what it is, what it it seemed to be is kind of... um, an echo chamber that a lot of the people who believed in these kind of things um, had created, which Mm. was a complete rejection of um, establishment, mainstream media, uh, 
yeah, what was generally in the public discourse and very specifically getting all our information from um, social media, some various um, anti-vaccine groups, mm. um, maybe the, so a group that we, we interview uh, because they were holding a protest at the time was Stand Up Bristol. Mm. And, you know, that's that's a group and they, they have their own WhatsApp group to kind of convey different forms of, you know, different information that they've heard of about why the mm. vaccine is, um, is, is, is harmful for us. Mm. I guess... Uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, you know, to some extent, does this sort of anti-vaxxer discourse, as in, you know, not the the actual people who are vaccine hesitant or whatever, but the people who are very alarmed at the rise of conspiracy theories and things like that, is it quite a convenient way of dismissing people and making everyone sort of think that the general population of people is you know more stupid and more misinformed than actually they are and actually you know the the blame doesn't always lie with sort of ordinary people and actually you know misinformation yeah sure it can come from social media but mm-hmm. it can also come from the mainstream media as well um and yeah again just to sort of return to that point most people do seem to be taking the vaccine when it's being offered to them in this country and in other countries, the biggest factor that's going to stop people being vaccinated, I would say, my reading of it, is that, um, you know, we're not doing enough to help with distribution there. And, you know, our pharma companies might be sort of holding on to some patents that they need to be sort of spreading around. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is exactly what I uh, sort of perceived in the course of making helping to make this documentary was that there's a really thin very slippery line between being skeptical mm. healthily skeptical scrutinizing authority and then just straight up paranoid and mm. i think also you know in in 1998 when there was the huge controversy about the link between autism and the mmr mmr yep. vaccine and then uh yeah, it was said that, that this vaccine was potentially had a relationship mm. with bowel disease and autism and all this, and that it was not probably te- properly tested. And this was propagated by a doctor called Andrew Wakefield, who, and, and that was really seized on by the mm. media, and, and it made people feel really scared and confused. And eventually it was found that actually Andrew Wakefield had a kind of um, vested interest and his evidence was found to be completely false. He was struck from the medical Mm. register, but it was kind of too late by then that the fear had remained. So I Mm. think there have been these incidences which uh, mainstream media have to be held accountable for. Mm for creating a suspicion of fear it's it's not the people are stupid mm. they're just kind of piecing together as we all are the information that's in, available to them i think it's really i mean it's for good reason i think it's a topic we keep coming back to because you know if you have a critique of the media environment we're in ourselves and mm. trust people and things like that i think it's a really interesting um place to talk about Right, that's it. That's the end of the show. Uh, You've been listening to The Bristol Agenda on BCFM with me, Tin Hinson, and Priyanka Ravel. Happy International Women's Day. (laughs) Thank you so much. I I somehow sound more patronising each time I'm doing it. Uh, In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can at BCFM Radio. And a little sneak peek for you soon, we will have our own full suite of social media, full spectrum Bristol agenda things thanks to Mr. Rohan Roy 
Right. Till next time. Bye bye. Bye. This is Bristol's BCFM on 93.2, online and on your mobile. BCFM is an award winning community radio station for Bristol, bringing you national.